Welcome, everybody. Glad that you're here. My name is Jose, and we are on the tail end. There's just two more messages after this one uh, in a year-long study in the book of Acts. And if you're new, welcome. We've been mining, and there's like, I think, 40-some-odd messages online if you want, mining this ancient text, not as a history lesson, to see what the church did or was 2,000 years ago. But the reason for us to look at the book of Acts is to see our story in light of Jesus' resurrection and what the early followers look like, how does that impact our world? How do we reflect Jesus in the 21st century? And so it's been life-changing, literally, for so many of us here. And we're getting close to the end. And um, if you're wanting to know, like, what, what are you called to be as a follower of Jesus? Or if you join a church, and if this is the place that you call home, what does a vibrant, healthy church look like? What's it supposed to look like? What do we do? What do we avoid? Now, not to make following Jesus simplistic, but as elders and leaders in the church, early on, we came up with a phrase. It's not a slogan. It's not a pitch. But it's what we believe to be the heart of Jesus following both in Acts and the rest of the New Testament and in our world. And so the phrase is, we want to help people experience life in Jesus. When Jesus rises, this group of normal, ordinary fishermen, tax collectors, regular people commit the rest of their days to help others. They don't live for themselves anymore. Following Jesus implied their role was to be about Jesus' business in the world. But not just help people. Everyone wants to be philanthropic. It's totally hip, start a company, right? And you need your cause, your social cause, whether you actually believe it or not. It's kind of a corporate mantra. But we think that Helping people experience life, life the way it was intended, life the way God designed it, is at the heart of following Jesus. So we want to experience life. We come here each week, we get together in homes or on campuses to figure out what life in God's supposed to look like and to put ourselves in step with God. And we recognize that everything in Acts is about Jesus. And so help people experience life in Jesus is what we see all over Acts and in our church. Now, there's one marker I want us to look at because we're here in Acts 28. One marker that I want us to zero in on. So um, it's going to be fairly simple, but this is actually warning. This is harder to live out. So why don't we flip over to Acts 28. We're going to do uh, the first half of it this week, second half next week, and then in a couple weeks after that, we're going to do a recap of the whole book. So uh, Acts 28, verse 1 says, Once safely on shore, Luke is inserting himself here. We, including Luke, found out uh, that the island was called Malta. You remember last week they were at sea for two weeks plus, shipwrecked. They didn't know where they were. They landed. They find out that they're on Malta. And the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Not that we can't relate, right? It's like totally, they landed, they landed in Tillamook. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> but they had good cheese. There you go. So Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. Now, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him 
to live in the first century, everyone, everyone believed in the gods. The challenge the church had is they believed there were multiple gods over multiple things. So the whole idea of one creator God setting his one son, that was the mystery. They all believed in the gods and they believed in fate. Things happened because of things that you did and the gods were mostly against you. But if you're really nice and really helpful and really sacrificial, maybe you can get the gods on your side. So they recognize this guy. They say, he must be a murderer because he's killed someone now. The gods, the goddess justice, is coming to enact her revenge. But, quoting Taylor Swift, Ball, a Paul, shook the snake off. Shake it off. Shake, shake it off. All right, you missed it. Into the fire. It's not in the text, but... Work with me. <laughs> shook, uh, shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effects. And the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. This is so wacky. One second, he's a murderer. Oh, but he could be a god. You never know. The gods would come down and appear before men. So the fact that he did not die, oh, this isn't the gods' justice. Maybe the gods have visited us on the island of Malta. Well, they changed their minds and they thought he was a god. Uh, verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. And he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. We'll read the rest of this in a little bit, but I want us to see a day in the life of Paul. One day, he is on the water after weeks at sea. He goes from prisoner to leader because everyone's afraid they're going to die. They're throwing the cargo overboard, if you were here last week. They were scared for their lives. They, they try to sneak out. The, the shipmates, the, 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 the boat leaders try to escape on the little raft, and Paul calls him out and says, if you go, we're all going to die. And he goes from a captive, he's in chains, a nobody, to taking over and saying, God met me here on the boat, and angels appeared, we're all going to live, but we're going to lose the ship, we're going to run aground, follow me. They land, it's cold and it's wet, and they don't know where they are, they discover it's Malta, because the, the islanders come out, and out of hospitality, they they build a fire. They could be thinking they're, they're getting attacked. There's military leaders. There's centurions with weapons on this, but they show hospitality. They build a fire. But then things turn. Remember, Paul is a Jesus follower, following God's plan. And talk about a rough day. You think you had a rough week? He goes from a shipwreck to trying to build a fire. Paul himself is gathering the wood, and he's struck by a snake. It's just a reminder. We said it last week. That just because you follow Jesus does not mean that you're going to be exempt from real trouble and real heartache and real struggle. Don't buy that lie because Paul is doing the right thing. The angel appears to him. All 276 live. That's miraculous. But Paul's bitten again. But the bite leads to something. The people think he's a god. That's why it says in verse 7, there's an estate belonging to Publius who's the equivalent of the mayor or the governor why do they let Paul into his house? Because maybe the gods have come. So the islanders, because he doesn't die, that snake bite opens a door for him. He gets into the governor's house or the chief official. He welcomed us to his home, showed us 
generous hospitality for three days. So evidently, if you're a God, you get a free meal and a place to stay. And by the way, Luke gets the free meal and a place to stay as well. So if you follow Jesus, yeah, you go through hardship, but God may use you to open up doors for everybody else. But not all is well in his home. Look at verse 8. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. There was something called a Malta fever, actually into the 1880s. This was a trouble on this island. What they didn't recognize because they didn't have scientific discovery is there was a contamination in the goat's milk. And because they're an island and all the goats stayed on that island, people would get sick out of nowhere. And it turned out to be a bacteria in the goat's milk. Uh, they later discovered it, got a vaccine, and it's no longer a problem. But you could have a fever for a few days, a few weeks, or up to two years. Try suffering from an on and off fever for a couple of years. It wrecks your system. So Publius is the key leader. We know he can afford a doctor. We know he could probably do anything to help his dad, but he's suffering because they don't know the, the cause. When in doubt, avoid goat's, goat's milk, evidently. It's not in the text, but it's just practical wisdom. If you're on Malta, don't drink the milk. Um, thank you. That was very, very kind. A little cackle. So he's sick in bed. Uh, and then what happens? Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. Uh, this is intriguing. Paul goes into the sick. Now how many of you know when someone's sick in bed with a fever, what do you do? You, you avoid them. Or you give them one of those nice white masks and say, you know, over the mouth and then we can talk. Paul's not afraid. God was faithful to him in the boat, Right? He didn't die because the viper bite. He's not afraid of this man's sickness. As a matter of fact, he, he realizes, like we should realize, God puts us in a place for a reason. So he says, I can help. Hey, doesn't say it in the text, but you've got to think he asked Publius, his, his host, would it be okay to pray for your father? Sure. He prays for him, and as the text says, nothing happened. Actually, it doesn't say that. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him, and he healed him. Catch that. Luke says, Paul healed him. Now, who healed him? Did God heal him or did Paul heal him? What does Luke say? Luke says, it doesn't say God. He says he healed him. Something happens in the life of the believer. Yes, the source is God, of course. Yes, God is the healer. But Luke could say, without having to apologize, God uses this man to bring about healing. It's the one time in the book of Acts that you see anyone lay hands on someone and they're healed. So there's a variety of ways that God heals. Oftentimes they're just preaching and people are healed. Uh, they pray for them without touch and they're healed. In this case, he touches the man in bed and he rises up and he is healed. But fortunately, that's just a one-off and it never happens again. Actually, verse 9. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. So God allows Paul to be in a storm to end up on an island he never intended to go to. They were not going to Malta. But God knows that Publius' father is ill. Could it be that God brought Paul all the way in the wrong direction, quote unquote, because he loves Publius and wants to see him part of the kingdom. He's an influential man. He's the equivalent of the governor. He's the biggest landowner. He's an influencer. Could it be that God uses? Now it doesn't say that Paul preaches the gospel. But how many of you know if you've been here for a while, do you think Paul tells about the love of Jesus? 
Absolutely. If they're going to kill Paul, he preaches to him before they try to kill him. So you know that when he's healed, I'm sure, he says, oh, I'm not a god. Flesh and blood, I'm a nobody. But I do know the God of Israel. And the God of Israel sent his one son, Jesus. And Jesus is the one who went about doing miracles and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And Jesus is the one who points the way to the Father. And Jesus, you know, I'm sure he gives him the gospel. And so not only is Publius' dad healed, but it says all the islanders who were sick and they were cured. Could it be? doesn't say. But I think it's safe to imply that Publius becomes a spokesperson to say, like, look, this, there's been healing at my home. Why don't you come and let this Paul talk to you? Uh, now, what happens? The result, verse 10, they honored us in many ways, and when we're ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. Such an interesting way that God can provide. They're stuck and they're literally shipwrecked all their food. The owner of the ship has lost everything. It's his responsibility to get the centurion and Paul and the other prisoners and soldiers. He's been contracted to get them all the way to Rome. And God provides through these islanders. This is amazing. Now here's the fun part. Verse 11. After three months, they end up spending three months on this island. Again, Luke doesn't give us all the details because he has one big point to make, and I'll make it when we get to that verse. But after three months, we put out to sea in a ship. I think, I've got to believe that Paul leaves a church in Malta. There's no possible way he doesn't preach the gospel. There's no possible way that people aren't converted and turned to faith in Jesus because all these people are being healed, and Paul's saying, this good news is for you. So they leave after three months after, in a ship, that had wintered on the island. And then look at the detail. It was an Alexandrian ship, evidently that's important, with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Why is he giving us this detail? I think because Luke is writing to people decades after this happened. I want you to know, there's going to be some stories going around that say this didn't happen. Oh, I was there. I can tell you the ship, and just look for the boat with these twin gods. I was on that ship. Luke has been giving us an accurate account of what happened in the life of Jesus and his followers. We put, out, uh, we put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. Again, he's interested in the detail. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up. And the following day we reached Puteoli. And there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome, and that is what Luke has been taking 28 chapters to get to. So we got to Rome. Maybe you missed it because this is a, a year ago, but Acts 1.8, the promise of Jesus, when he resurrected, before he ascended to the Father, he said, I'm going to give you my spirit. When you receive the spirit, you'll be my witnesses. You, you will do what I have been doing. You will say what I've been saying. Where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where is the ends of the earth? The ends of the earth isn't like Timbuktu, which is in West Africa. It's not, where's the ends of the earth for them? It's Rome. Rome is the ends of the earth. Because Rome is the epicenter of everything. And if the faith in Jesus movement could happen in Rome, the entire known world would be changed. So what Luke has done is given us a story all to get to this point. Paul makes it all the way to Rome. 
And then it says in verse 15, the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, that they traveled as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Do you know, um, he's been on a horrific journey. Paul thinks he's going to Rome to preach the gospel. His one goal is to get before Caesar, because remember, he appealed to Caesar's court. He'd been falsely accused. The other governors could have let him go, but he saw that there was injustice, and he knew as a Roman citizen, he has the right to the highest supreme court of the land. You eventually go to D.C., and you make your, you make your case. As a Roman citizen, he could appeal if he felt like it was unjust. He could appeal all the way to Caesar's court, maybe even hear from Caesar himself. Why does Paul do this? He knows part of his calling is to preach the gospel before the greatest leaders. So even though he's a prisoner, he's like, I'm going to get my 20 minutes and I'm going to give him Jesus. And I pray. I could, I could see Paul praying and pleading, God, as I make it to Rome, I pray that you'll change the entire world. The ends of the earth will be changed if Caesar is converted and places his faith in Jesus. So Paul has a sense of expectation, but everything keeps going wrong. And so, like a weary traveler, it says, for 30 miles, these locations that seem vague, the brothers and sisters, he had written a letter called Romans. We're going to begin studying it this fall. The letter to the Romans was already written by Paul before he gets there. He writes it in anticipation of his coming. He's actually going to want the Roman church to support him because by faith he believes he's going to get out and go to Spain and preach the gospel there. So he's already, they, this church knows about him. They've heard the stories. His faith has been heard throughout the empire. And, and the brothers and sisters, many we probably never met, travel 30 plus miles because they realize Paul's making it. And, and I'm sure they, they hug. Now, I have a small sense of that. I, I get to travel a bit and preach the gospel in many places of the world. But there is something when you come back. Now, my, my travels are unlike Paul's in a ship that crashes. My biggest struggle is, will I get bumped up for free to first class? You know, I'm in comfy hotels. I'm eating good food. I mean, no, no one's trying to kill me. But there is something when I've been gone two or three weeks or whatever to come back and to sound mushy, to see you worship Jesus. I, I love worshiping in other places around the world. I love other churches. But there's no place like home, says Dorothy. There's no place like home. Click, click, you know. I, I, I love, I, I love being here. So Paul is encouraged by seeing brothers and sisters. Paul's not an isolated follower of Jesus. Friend, yes, it's you and Jesus. Yeah, totally get it. There is this thing as a personal encounter with the living God. I'm all for that. But it's also we and Jesus. Paul's not isolated. The church at Antioch, a real city, sent him out. And now the church in Rome, a real group of Jesus followers, who were already established, they come out to meet him. So because he's connected with Antioch, Antioch's connected with Rome, and I'm here to suggest nothing's changed. We're a part of a global movement. We're a part of a global thing. And wherever you go, you can find worshipers of Jesus. It's the, if you haven't traveled much, you're missing it. There's something about being in a different place and being around other people. You have nothing in common, and then you hear a song that's familiar, and you worship Jesus together. So that's Paul's experience. Now, Paul sees his friends and he thanks God. Let's just wrap it up and I'll make my one point and we'll go off to lunch. Verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live 
by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now, he already had a soldier to guard him. Everyone reading this knows the custom was for two soldiers to be guarding Paul while they're transporting. So he's probably chained to one and another one's on the lookout. But now they get to Rome and Paul's not free, but free sort of. This is so cool. Paul is allowed to rent his own apartment, even though he's a prisoner, and live by himself with one rotating prison guard. That, oh, he's always with a prison guard, but he's not like in isolation. Now, I'm reading into the text, but I want to suggest something. I think that because God used Paul on the ship to save them in Malta to invoke hospitality and get blessing, I got a feeling that the centurion and the other soldiers, when they got to Rome and tried to figure out where does Paul go, they could have thrown him in isolation. They could have thrown him in a deep dungeon. But I think it was his attitude. I think it was his Jesus-likeness that opened the door for them to say, you know what, he, he's been accused, but gosh, if this is an evil man, we haven't seen it. And he's given a place. Now, this is going to be strategic because when we finish out Romans, we're going to see that Paul's given an avenue to preach the gospel one-on-one -on -one to many people because he's allowed to see visitors. So faithfulness on the boat, faithfulness on the island, faithfulness to God opens up doors. That's a word for some of you. You be faithful where you're at. You serve Jesus. You don't give up hope. You try to live out what it means to follow Jesus, and he will open up various doors for you. So Paul's in Rome. He's chained to a guard. And at this point, he needs the church. It's not in the text, but we know this from history, that when you're a prisoner or you're in the hospital, Rome does not provide for your whims. It's not unlike today. You go to jail and you get cable for free. You get a gym. You can actually get a college degree paid for. Now, I'm not against that. I'm a believer in reform. But in those days, you are living off the hospitality of friends and family. As a matter of fact, I've been in many parts of the world visiting prisons and hospitals, and it's the same thing. They'll give you just the essentials to live and not die under their care, but everything else, you need people to love you. But here's the good news. Paul's a part of the church. And because he's a follower of Jesus, the brothers and sisters come. How is he going to pay for his rent? The brothers and sisters provide. How is he going to pay for his food? The brothers and sisters provide. If he gets sick, the brothers and sisters provide. My friends, following Jesus is critical to life because God puts you in a family. And that family is here to care for you. Now this is the end of what is in Acts known as the we passages. Notice Luke kept saying, we, 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 we. He's with him to Rome. And then if you read the rest of Acts 28, you don't see we anymore. Luke goes off. And, and what Paul does is he dictates his team. He can't leave, but he's the leader of the team. And people come and go, Timothy and Luke and others. And he's able to continue to lead the churches. Even though he's in chains, God's pro God provides the grace for him to have such liberty. Now here's my one point, and we're going to pray. Actually, it'll take me 10 more minutes, but we'll get there eventually. <laughs> Disclaimer. I get paid by the minute. So it's just, I, so anyway, it's not true by the word. It's worse. God is faithful to Paul and will be faithful to you. That is the point of Acts 28. It's actually the point of the entire book. Why does Paul give us all this detail? Why is there so much narrative in the Bible? 
most of the Bible is narrative. And that by, that, by that I mean it is a type of literature that is story-driven. It's not a made-up story. It's not on par with Harry Potter. This is a real account. It's real history. But why is most of the Bible written in narrative? If I'm God, why don't I just like say, this is exactly what I'm like. Do this and die. Do this and live. End of story. Ten pages. It's over. I think it's because God knows how the human mind and heart work. If you want to be something in life, you probably are going to look for people who are better than you at what you want to do. Biography inspires. When you see the real activity of other people, I love biographies. I chew up biographies because in it I, I can put myself in that story. And even though the circumstances are different, the age is different, the language is different, when I see God's faithfulness in the life of a person, it inspires me to believe that God will be faithful to me. And so in the same way, God knows how you think. And, and story, narrative, crosses cultures. We all get shipwreck and the thought of being left at sea. We all get healing out of pain and suffering. We all can feel what Paul feels in one sense. And so God gives us truth in story. And he does it to show us that if God's faithful to Paul, the implication is God will be faithful to you. Now, some of you are saying, well, but why did Paul have to go through all this stuff? Like, if God is real, why didn't he just like get him to Rome? He preaches, Caesar accepts, and he's set free. Look at the mystery of God. I'll throw it on the screen. Acts 9, 15 and 16. Before Paul actually becomes a Jesus follower, he meets God on the road. He meets Jesus. A light shines down. It blinds Paul. And then he hears the voice of Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. Bad news. Then Jesus says, go into the city and you'll be told what you'll do. God leads Ananias, a Jesus follower, to speak to Paul. And Ananias says to Jesus, no, this guy's out to kill Christians. No, 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 you speak to him. Tell him this. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Before any of this happens in Acts, God says it's going to happen. Now, what does that imply? It implies God knows the future before it happens. God knows your future before it happens. God is not surprised. Paul is my chosen instrument at the right time on a road. Now's the time to get Paul's attention. Now's the time to get Ananias' attention. And then he, he throws out this prediction. He's going to do some things. He's going to go to Gentiles and Jews and to kings. Does Paul preach to Jews? Check. Yes. Does Paul preach to Gentiles? Check. Yes. Does Paul preach to kings? Yes. We just saw it last week. King Agrippa and King Festus. He, he has a chance to do everything God says. Does Paul suffer for Jesus' name? Check, 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 check. So Ananias warns Paul at the beginning, here's, here's your new story. God's going to bring you through, but there's going to be suffering involved. So Paul later can write to the Corinthian church and, and, and Paul helped establish this church. But then Paul leaves and other leaders come in and say, Paul, he's lame. If God was really with him, he wouldn't suffer so much. We're successful. Follow us. Our teaching is the way to success. 
those who suffer, God's hand is against them, which is actually wrong. So Paul writes back, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, and he says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. In other words, the church, you have an option. Are you going to follow a leader who's got a track record? Are you going to follow these supposed teachers who are trying to lead you astray? And what does he pull on? He pulls on the faithfulness of God. Look at what he says. He says, five times I received the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. One time could kill you. He got it five times. Jesus was only flogged once. And the Bible says, you couldn't, even, you couldn't even make out his appearance. He was brutalized so much. But Paul got it five times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. They would beat your feet. Because there were no cars. There were no very unsafe, what do they call those things? Hover, whatever. Things that could blow up and kill your feet. But anyway, they, they, he was beaten on the feet so that you would have pain for the rest of your life as you walked. He didn't get it once. He didn't get it twice. He got it three times. All for faith in Jesus. He says, I was once pelted with stones. And that was like, no, like, eh, like snowball fight. They threw so many rocks at him that they walked up to him and they went back into the town because they thought he died. A.K.A. he was probably bleeding to death. But God raised him up and he walked back into town and preached. Paul's pulling on like, if you think I'm a flake, know this, all the suffering is because I actually believe in Jesus' name. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day at open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger in the sea, and danger amongst false believers. His resume is, I'm still here. God has, if God's against me, I would have been dead a long time ago. God has been faithful to me. So stories help us see what is true. And so looking back at Acts 28, and then we want to we pray this in. Is God faithful? Well, we saw in, in, in chapter 28, God's faithful to protect Paul from the sea and get him to the island. God's faithful to give him favor amongst Publius and his household. He ends up in the governor's mansion. God's faithful to provide food. God's faithful to heal Publius' father, which opens up doors to speak to the whole town. And I think he's faithful to see people, other, other people follow Jesus. He's faithful to provide another ship. He's faithful to keep this other ship from crashing. He's faithful to bring the brothers and sisters from all over the area. So when Paul makes it to Rome, he's a prisoner. But he's a prisoner with friends. God has been faithful. That's just chapter 28. But I want us to see his faithfulness is best displayed in the middle of a very messy situation. Paul's story is messy, which means when my story is messy, it doesn't mean that God has left me. Just because you're struggling, even though you had nothing to do with it, just because you're in danger, just because you have heartache, just because things are not the way they should be, does not mean that God has left you. Jesus' faithfulness is best displayed when you contrast it with the ship that's about to sink. And so Acts reminds us, God has been faithful and he will be faithful. Now, before we pray, uh, this week I had a chance to have coffee with Wes, who's been part of our community since the beginning. 
and was a part of Westside before we were planted. And Wes said it's okay to share his story. And some of you may know him. He's uh, been a part of a company for 30 plus years. That's not far from here. And he finally landed in his dream job within that company. And, you know, stay with your dream job and retire. But he wanted to meet, even though I've seen him, I've, we've never met to, to hang out. But he wanted to say how much acts has been timely for him. Because around the fall, as we were in the middle of all the negative things happening in Acts, he began to experience those on his job. Uh, there was a bit of a shake-up, and some people were let go. He wasn't let go, but was offered under positions, positions well under this dream job. So if you want to stay, you can now do this, this, or this. You lose your position, you lose your clout. I don't know if the money situation changed, but it was a definite downgrade. How many of you love a downgrade? You know? You have, the, you have the iPhone 6, you're just dying for the 3. Someone, give me a 3. I mean, no, no one, no one loves a downgrade. No one loves to take a step back. But Wes began to see what we should all see. That God often uses a negative circumstance to open up a positive door. So Wes was saying what God has been doing. He put him from one group to another group. This other group, the manager's a Christian. And so it, when things get slow, this manager wants to help their employees in their group be better at public speaking. Well, that's pretty cool, like entrepreneurial. And so even though they don't, in their role, they don't speak at all. Like they don't, they're not doing speeches, but wants their skill set to grow. So everyone has to give a book report to the group, which sounds like very third grade. Like, you know, but you got to do a book report. So it gives everyone a chance to present and people to critique. So... Wes does a book report on Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, which is an apologetic explaining why the Bible is true and you should follow Jesus. So Wes said, I don't like the fact that I lost my dream job. I don't like the fact that I'm in this group. I'm underutilized. It's less motivating to go to work when your full skills aren't used. But, he said, God has put me in front of people I would never have been in front of and God opened a door to do book reports so I could talk about Jesus. Now, that's Acts in the 21st century. But the perspective change is what's insightful. Wes was able to see and is able to see. And, this, and he was honest. He's like, this isn't easy. But I see what God's doing. And the same could be said for you. You may not be on a ship. And you may not be in prison, and you may not be on trial for your life, but you're going to have ups and downs. And the question is, are you going to reflect the love of Jesus? Are you going to reflect, reflect the passion of Jesus? Are you going to live Jesus-like in your situation? Or are you going to cave in to the culture around us that says we deserve more? Now, I'll tell you why this is so hard for us. And like I said, eventually, 20 minutes from now, we're going to pray. Um, this is so hard for us because our worldview in America says, I deserve upward mobility. It's embedded in our founding documents. We deserve the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Debt. <laughs> Which is the same thing. We deserve this. And hear me, especially if you're a young person, you've been told your whole life that you deserve to go upward and you deserve better and you're going to climb higher and we prove it in athletics. This isn't stepping on toes, it's stepping on feet. We give out prizes for participation. So if a kid has no skill and shows up two times, misses most of the games, he's going to get a prize as much as a star athlete. 
for participation. Now, I'm not making a statement about our athletic rewarding. What I am saying, it is a product of our culture that says you deserve more. And if you pay the fee, you deserve a prize because you're a star and you could be someone even when you have absolutely no skill. So the worst thing that we could do is to be honest with someone and say, you should drop soccer and take up tennis. Because that would be crushing the poor child and losing their self-esteem. And they may not become the person that they were created to be. I'm here to say we're delusional as a culture because it's a philosophical bedrock. We believe it is our inalienable rights to achieve higher, which leads to the fact that we all feel entitled. This is where faith becomes hard. This is where Jesus becomes difficult. You lose your rights when you follow Jesus. You have the right to suffer if you follow Jesus. You have the right to give rather than to receive. You have the right to sacrifice for the good of others instead of attaining and building more for me and mine. Which sounds hardcore. It's actually true and we have been fed a lie. So the reason we study the Bible is to see this is true this worldview is right, and we have to evaluate our worldview in light of God's worldview. And God's worldview says God is faithful even in our suffering. And God, who was faithful to Paul, will be faithful to you. So let's put it back on the screen. God, who was faithful to Paul, will be faithful to you. God, who was faithful to Paul, will be faithful to you. It doesn't mean that you're always going to rise higher. It doesn't mean that your suffering is going to end quickly. It doesn't mean that you always get what you want. But we are a mixed bag of all sorts of stuff this morning. We all have areas of brokenness. God will be faithful to you. We all came in here with real needs. Financial needs, physical needs, emotional needs, relational needs. We're all like not experiencing everything we want. We could agree on that. But God will be faithful to you. We're all living here with shame and regret. This is an interesting nuance. They accuse Paul of being a murderer when the snake bites him. Was Paul a murderer? Yes. He was there at the stoning of Stephen and gave his agreement to it, Acts tells us. So looking back on his life, Paul would say, I was a murderer. I actually I authorized the killing of Christians. So ironically, the islanders pick up on something in his past. But notice, he moves past shame and past regret because he realized that's who he was, but now he's in Christ. And because he's in Jesus, he is no longer the former man. He is now brand new, alive to God. And because of that, God is faithful to him. So here's what I want us to do. On Monday, I usually take Monday afternoon and just kind of pray through the next Sunday. Because it takes me a while to figure out, like, what's the Bible saying? I look at Acts 28, just like you do, and go, like, crickets, I'm in trouble. Like, uh, we're running out of stuff. So I take Monday to, to, to just think through, like, okay, God, what are you doing? Monday hit me. And it doesn't always do that. Monday hit me. We need to pray for healing. Here's why. Paul didn't expect to be on Malta, but there were broken people there that Jesus wanted to redeem. So he sends the right person at the right time for their good. And could it be that God brought you here at the right time for your good? 
Could it be that God brought you here with, with the stuff? With, he hasn't released you from this yet. He hasn't healed you from this yet. He hasn't, he hasn't fully gotten you out of that yet. But could it be that God wanted to intersect his faithfulness with your story right here, right now? And so I told our leaders, we have a leaders meeting on Tuesday. I said, guys, we need to pray. We need to pray that God would heal people this weekend because God was faithful. He will be faithful. And if he healed them, why wouldn't he heal us now? And so we've been praying all week. There's a group has been praying all week for you that when you showed up with real brokenness, pain, suffering, whatever, that Jesus would heal you. You may see it today. You may not see it till next week or next month. But that Jesus would do his work. Now, I already know it because I can read minds. Some of you are saying, I just don't know if that's possible. I don't know if I believe that. Well, I'll throw one on you. We believe that. So maybe you're not ready to believe that yet. Would you allow us to believe God for your good? You're not sure. Okay, would you allow us to express faith in Jesus for your good? And maybe, like on Malta, when you see God at work, then you realize, oh my gosh, I believe. Could it be that God has set you up for today?